Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. So hi everyone and welcome to the final event today at the Forum, brought to you by RSA. I'm Liv Winter, I'm an artist and a performer and sometimes a writer, when I pretend, and an educator. Um, And I'm really looking forward to interviewing Lola today. Lola is a writer and researcher and is involved with a number of amazing projects such as the Feminist Library and Bare Minimum as a facilitator, curator, organiser and in lots of other guises. She has written and contributed to several great books and publications and today we're going to be talking about Lola's amazing book, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power. Thanks so much for talking with me, Lola. No worries. That's quite an impressive list of things you got on your CV there. Um, So a big theme in the book was uh, reproductive rights and justice around all of that and and autonomy with our body. Um, And obviously we've recently seen the Roe versus Wade overturning. I wondered if you had any reflections on where you think uh, the laws are heading around people's autonomy and their bodies. Um, yeah, thank you so much, um, Liv. It's such a joy and an honour to um, be in conversation with you. Um, uh, I guess for people that maybe haven't read the book, it would it would be good to kind of give a brief overview of some of the arguments in the book. So the, the book made, uh, I guess, the broad argument that... Um, in this age of like neoliberalism, and I define neoliberalism as um, a set of policies and, and processes over the last 10 years that have um, really decimated infrastructures of social care, have um, uh, privatized and securitized the ways that um, we live and the ways that we, we relate to each other, and also concentrated wealth from the working class upwards. The argument is that the kind of feminism that arises from that policy environment um, is one that is um, geared towards competition, geared towards making it to the top. Um, We see this in um, uh, lots of discussions around feminism, around like girl boss feminism, etc, etc. So this book um, tries to make the case that feminism is a a radical political methodology that we can use to make demands for our freedom and the freedom of other people and I wanted to kind of bypass a lot of the liberal arguments um, that are put forward in mainstream discourse about feminism that kind of focuses only on things like um, the pay gap or the the law and make a more kind of critical and radical um, case that there are lots of histories of feminism that go beyond um, these ways of thinking. Um, and that enables them to speak to... Um, I guess the most marginal, some of the most, the lives of some of the most marginalised women, and also I guess um, uh, ultimately make a critique of capitalism to say that feminism actually is a, a method that we can use to critique how we live and also to ask questions and make political demands to improve our material conditions. So then in the in the reproductive justice um, chapter, I, I was kind of talking about the difference between reproductive um, justice and reproductive rights. And we see this now, like in, in the kind of political landscape that we're in. I think in the UK, we like to think that um, we live in a, a quite a liberal policy environment, but we know that um, uh, abortion has only recently been decriminalised everywhere in um, the UK, and um, also that there are still people who are being prosecuted for um, using pills to take abortions rather than getting the permission of two doctors. There's currently um, an asylum seeker or a, a woman, a migrant woman, sorry, um, who is going to face trial for doing that. And so I guess um, broadly what I'm trying to say is that um, 
the kind of language of rights or the language of you know um, uh, free, safe, legal abortion. It's not that that isn't a, a pressing and political demand that we should make now, but it's also not enough for us to um, actually have full autonomy over our bodies, right? We, uh, full autonomy over our bodies would require a, a kind of critical relationship with the state, would require us to actually think uh, about uh, reproduction holistically. So actually, what what use is um, access to abortion if when we do have children, our children are sick, they don't have access to healthcare, they are routinely stopped and searched by police. Um, There are all of these other structures that are acting on their lives. And I think what reproductive justice does is say that actually broadly we should be looking at how to improve life um, you know whilst also um, protecting and defending the right to abortion abortion on demand etc we should also be thinking about um, the ways that we live in the world essentially as a that was a very long it was very impressive as what it was Lola thank you <laughs> um, yeah that was great and that's interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was whether you think there's been a shift away from kind of community organising and a focus on community feminism into the more kind of individual and the kind of damage or what you think that's done to the movement. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because we've seen, like, in a mainstream sense, feminism really come into focus, like, um, over the last decade in a way that it hadn't been before. But because that was in the liberal mainstream, the, the stakes were lowered. So we had conversations about, you know, can you be a feminist and shave your legs? Is it important that XYZ celebrity calls themselves a feminist? Um, and so I, I find it really interesting when people talk about feminism as a singular or, or unified kind of movement. There's always been dissent. There's always been disruption. There have always been um, people making different political demands and claims under the same umbrella historically and in the contemporary moment. And um, for me, that divide is very clear when we see the... the um, the focus of grassroots, more radical forms of feminist organising that are interested in mutual aid, interested in questions of how we keep each other alive, and um, anti-raids, anti-deportations. They're making um, uh, arguments that feminism also attends to the lives of like migrants, also attends to the lives of workers, um, uh, is you know, um, invested in the improvement of economic, social, political conditions, versus a feminism that is interested like a, a more kind of liberal feminism, which is interested in um, this notion of success via hierarchy. And it doesn't really have an understanding that one woman's success might be uh, intimately linked to the exploitation of another woman, right? So the boardroom becomes this figurative ground upon which all of feminism's um, the wages are staked. So if we have, you know, a woman CEO of XYZ terrible company, um, that that is supposed to be a win. That's a progress. That that's a form of progress. And I guess what the book is trying to do is question. I think w- one of the things that I say in the state chapter is like, you know, what's what's the use of a um, a parliament full of like women po- politicians if they step over the dead bodies of other women to get there? Like, what's what's the use of a CEO, a female CEO of when Shell is responsible for some of like the gravest injustices around the world, and so 
I think this, this is something that you and I know, um, but I think it's still an important argument to make because um, liberal feminism has such a grip on the imagination. And often when I make these arguments or when people read the book or whatever, a lot of what I'm kind of um, faced with is, is like, oh, this seems impossible, right? Like around ideas of like abolition or around ideas fully of liberation or the end of capitalism as, as a concept or an idea, um, the, the, the weight of like uh, lib the liberal feminist imagination is such that people can't, people aren't even willing to do a thought exercise that their lives might be different, right? And so I think for me, the reason why I write or the reason why you know, it's important for these arguments to be made is that they chip away ideologically um, at something. And that's important because uh, the, the way that we live is held up by a specific understanding, held up by a specific kind of like obedience to the state, obedience to um, uh, institutions, etc. And anywhere that you can, like, the, the, I think the most radical political genealogies across the board have always attempted to kind of sow discord and um, I guess to get people to question actually the ways that they live oh, and, and to ask that really important question how should we live that's the question that I think feminism offers us yeah I think as well like I don't know I consider myself politically an abolitionist and the thing that I find really empowering about that is that it's this invitation to imagine a completely different world and to like lean into that creative concept of what a future could be and um, I think yeah when you're focused around your dream being being at the top of the pyramid rather than widening the floor. Yeah. That's kind of the wrong angle to take. So I think that's really interesting. I always think it's really interesting to think about feminism as a, like you say, as a methodology rather than this kind of label. It's about practice. Um, and at the moment, I'm doing lots of thinking about like what it means to lead and live a revolutionary life and what it means to like build those things into your day-to-day. -day. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about kind of organizing around these topics and how, how these kind of thoughts and processes have affected your, your kind of day-to-day. -day. Um, yeah, when I, when I was writing um, the first chapter of the book is uh, called Know Your History, and it was basically me trying to give a very like brief and um, critical overview of black feminist formations in the 70s and 80s. So that's groups like um, the Brits and Black Women's Group, um, the Organization of Women of African and Asian descent, which were community groups of black feminists, um, women of color feminists who came together and um, did things like um, protested virginity testing at Heathrow Airport that was happening um, to South Asian women or protested against sus laws, which were um, a, a kind of law that enabled people, um, the police to uh, stop and search a, a young black people, essentially, um, indiscriminately. And those often, because we think of feminism as kind of... Um, I guess, uh, proceeding in a linear fashion, those forms of like organizing and those forms of community, um, uh, I guess, yeah, th those forms of um, community coming together um, are often erased from those like narratives. And so when, when you ask the question about revolutionary life, I think of people like Olive Morris, who was a communist um, a black like feminist squatter in um, Brixton, who was a part of like, the one of the longest running squats um, in in Brixton, alongside like Liz Obi. I think of people like Claudia Jones, who whose life was kind of like marred by the fact that um, she was expelled from the Communist Party of the USA, came to the UK, founded Notting Hill Carnival, but also was so crucial in um, creating spaces for um, uh, Black and Caribbean people to come together in order to, um, I guess. 
politically organized, but also to assess their own conditions and to understand um, which forces and structures were acting on their lives and were stopping them from actually being able to live full and dignified lives. So when I think about a revolutionary life, I think it, it first comes with being able to name truthfully, honestly, and openly um, the violence that... Um, uh, this world is constituted by, right? And also I think it, it, it's broadly, in, in the question about abolition and police violence, I think um, one thing that liberal feminism does really well is, is um, put forward this myth that the police pr protect women, right? But we know, um, you know, like in, for example, in the case of sexual violence, that that is not the case. We know that we have um, police officers who can, who, who use their police powers to murder women. We know that we have um, police officers who, take pictures of dead women's bodies and send those to their friends in WhatsApp groups, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when we're, I guess, making claims um, uh, to liberal feminists or when we're trying to critique it, I always ask, you know, if, if you do have the luxury of feeling protected by police power, which I think we both know is a kind of myth, are, are you willing to, to be the recipient of a kind of protection which means that somebody else has to die like some, or somebody else has to be um, kind of crushed by state violence? And, and those names are names that if people don't know, they should. People like Sherry Gross, like... Um, uh, yeah, there, there is a whole kind of list that I could um, rail off, but it, that doesn't, I think, do justice more... Um, I think that's not more important than the actual argument, which is that, like, um, the lies that liberal feminism tells about um, bringing police into our lives as a means of protection, actually, statistically, we know places survivors um, in danger means um, that women with insecure immigration status are much more likely to be deported, means that sex workers end up getting deported. And these are all people that um, are, are often, I think, left out of... Um, uh, the idea of who feminism is for and speaks to, right? And if those, if those people are your starting point, if those lives are the starting point of your political analysis, then you, you must have a, a much broader understanding of what feminism has to offer, right? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think it's interesting because obviously um, in the, like, horrible, horrible incident that was Sarah Everard's murder and then the Sisters Uncut direct actions that took place over the two weeks afterwards. I really felt like in the mainstream media there was a move towards conversations around abolition and I feel like for the first time we were kind of seeing like in quite normal newspapers this idea of like starting to critique the police. I wonder if you feel like there's going to be a further shift in that direction and what things we're going to come up against as we continue to try and work towards a kind of abolitionist environment I was going to say. I think um, broadly maybe it might be good to, to speak a bit about like what abolition is. I guess like abolition is um, an ideology, a way of thinking that holds that um, we might be able to deal with and reckon with and account for harm without using carceral systems. So without relying on police, prisons, etc. Abolitionists hold that police and, and prisons disappear people and that they don't deal with the kind of root of social problems, right? And I think like... Um, uh, being an abolitionist being an abolitionist is a kind of imaginative invitation to your audience to say we could prevent 
violence from happening, one, but we needn't act as if violence were an inevitability. And actually, within our communities, within the spaces that um, we occupy and, and exist in, we actually have a lot more power to, to end or interrupt cycles of violence, especially regarding um, sexual violence, when we know that people are most likely to experience sexual violence within the home by somebody they know, etc. We have a lot more agency in, in I guess, disrupting those, like, um, uh, violent pat patterns of behaviour. So that's kind of broadly what abolition um, is about. And I think it, it's it's an interesting time because we, here we see the, the tension and the kind of end of liberal feminism's um, uh, uh, scope, right? Because liberal feminism would tell us, well, these are bad apples, these things can be reformed. But we've known, we know historically that these are arguments that have make, been made over and over again. And so this idea that police and prisons provide a security, I think is such an interesting one because the world we live in is so, um, for, for you, for me, for, for lots of um, uh, people, extremely precarious and chaotic. If I ex experience any form of violence, it's not instinctual for me to, to call the police. I'd rather call my community, the people that are around me, because I understand that there's a, a, there's a level of safety there that I, I wouldn't have elsewhere. Um, and so, yeah, so we see the, the kind of tensions, like even in the Reclaim the Night response, right, um, so there was this kind of group that um, uh, held a protest um, after Sarah Everard's um, murder and they raised a bunch of funds, but these funds were going to go back into the violence against um, women sector, which has a lot, which again uh, was working to prop up those carceral systems, was telling us, okay, that the only way that we can help survivors is by inviting police to knock on their door. When we know that that's actually not what survivors need, what survivors need are like um, economic routes to stability, which have been desperate by 10 years of austerity. So th having a wider kind of political frame really allows you to, to, to not, um, I think, be fooled by what liberal feminism offers, right? And a commitment to a more radical orientation or, pos or position is a lifelong one. You know, people often also are like, well, these things that you're imagining, I can't see them happening here and I can't... Well, I'm like, yeah, our, our visions for how we should live are extremely capacious and there are lots of people who are invested in telling us that they're impossible. And when I, when I kind of invoke the names of, like, Claudia Jones and Olive Morris, these were people that had a political ethos that moved in every kind of aspect of their lives. And yes, they died young, they died before they should have, but, but their kind of legacy lives on in the work that is happening with sisters, in the move towards a more kind of abolitionist frame. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, our, our job is not to, to convince liberal feminists that they should be more radical. Our job is to, to look, um, to help people get the resources they need at the point at which they need them um, and to attend to the urgency of the moment. And I think, like, it's kind of split. There's the ideological work that needs to be done to pull someone over to a more critical frame. And then there's, like, the on-the-ground work, which I think something like Sisters does. So, yeah, I, I do actually... It, it's near impossible that even the word abolition or defund the police would ever come into like the kind of like liberal view and for us to actually have lived through that when 10 years ago you said the word feminism and everybody laughed that's a real that I think that's that's real progress or not to say progress because you know that implies a kind of linear thing but that's that's something concrete and it's something substantial yeah definitely thanks Lola <laughs> 
Um, I wondered if there was anything that you're kind of seeing around you that's giving you a kind of feminist hope or some kind of feeling like things are going to get better if we continue to organise together. I think um, one thing that I've been really thinking and reflecting on and being heartened by is like the um, creation of local cop watch groups um, in the face of... I, I, I think about how people came together in the face of like an unspeakable unspeakable acts of violence, right? And instead of, you know, being disillusioned by the idea that there's there's no way to care for one another, they took a really radical position, which is like the police act with impunity in our local communities. They harass and traumatise young people from their most formative stages. How do we, in the carceral landscape that we live in, pose an interruption? And so the idea of people in local communities coming together and skilling themselves up, knowing how to intervene um, in uh, in arrests, knowing how to de-arrest people, um, spreading the word when police officers are around, um, stopping deportations in action. That's, that's something that happened at the Latin vi- um, village at Seven Sisters. Those are all meaningful acts of solidarity, I think, and they're all acts that demonstrate that we actually have a lot of um, uh, power when we come together and and think critically about, you know, um, uh, what should be done rather than give in to this idea that, um, you know, after this decade of austerity, we're just constantly being beaten down by the next Tory government or the next wave of X, right? Instead of placing our energies solely in a party political arena, people are, I think, you know, relying on a lot more kind of anarchist um, principles, you know? It's not that the two are in competition, it's that they work in cohort and, yeah, in conjunction. And so I think that, like, that for me is something that's really... um, I'm thinking a lot about how we sustain that. I'm thinking a lot about how people um, uh, take the skills that they have and give them to others. I'm thinking a lot also following the legacies of like things like black supplementary schools in the UK, how people took knowledge that they weren't being given by institutions and gave them to each other. And how do we archive that? How do we expand it? How do we um, keep the energy going? Those are all questions. And there are like peaks and troughs, but like I think life is long. <laughs> and you know our demands are demands that will need to be reasserted again and again and again. And it's about a critical invitation for others to do that. But it's also about not um, uh, not giving up seems like too facile, but having a, a kind of political determination that, mean, that that is unshakable, you know, in the face of what we know will happen and happens again and will continue to happen, which is violence. Like, Yeah, definitely. I think as well, like, in terms of talking about sustainability of, of trying to live these lives, I think that what's really amazing about how Copwatch works, so Copwatch is like, um, there's loads in London at the moment kind of popping up, a group of people that basically make a commitment to go and intervene if they see something happening with the police. And uh, the Copwatch I'm in in Seven Sisters, already, almost every day, we are going by and trying to de-arrest people, giving people their rights. And once you start to kind of make that space for it in your life, I think it, for me, it now feels like a really sustainable thing to yeah. do, yeah. to just know that if I see that, I'm going to step yeah. in and do that. And also the, to, to know that police power relies on um, people not understanding how it works. Like, when, when you've made an intervention and you recognise that when you ask under what power, a police officer's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, actually, that they, they are 
um, planning on you not understanding how the law works. And so being able to actually forcefully um, with others make that claim, it's not only powerful in the moment, but it has a resonance for how they then begin to occupy this space, right? And that's the whole idea of a cop watch to say, the police don't protect us, we protect each other, and we watch them precisely because they don't protect us, you know? Yeah, for sure, but I think... (laughs) Yeah, we had a conversation recently, there was a a young person in my area who kind of got arrested and put in the back of a van, and we were saying, in what world have we all decided that it's okay for a young person to essentially be kidnapped by some people in a uniform and taken somewhere with no adult protection and no, no phone number, no understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to ask, but we're going to do some questions from the crowd, so uh, get your thinking hats on, people. Um, I just wondered if you wanted to just say a little bit about the process of writing the book. It's such a great book. I found it really amazing to read, and I just wanted to know a little bit how you found the process of actually trying to get those, like we say, quite ambitious, big thinking. We don't have the answers yet, but we're making progress towards them, and I wondered how the process was of writing it. Um, I think for me, I I really didn't want to... um patronize my reader because I think a lot of like introduction accessible books to feminism really go through through liberal arguments first because they're like well you won't understand how capitalism works you understand what it means to be a worker you do understand how capitalism works right Um, and so for me it was very I knew like from my experience of like organizing and and you know being in feminist circles the things that we were talking about that weren't being covered in mainstream like liberal newspapers um, and and those were things like sex worker solidarity, reproductive rights, the border, is um, gendered Islamophobia, um, abolition. And so I, I knew it, it was, in a way, it was, I had a, a real clear structure. And I think I, I wrote a lot of it whilst I was doing my gender studies master's. Um, and so, I, yeah, I just spent a lot of time in the library. And um, I spent a lot of time also, I had the the joy and honour of being able to speak to people like involved in sisters, involved in um, the campaign um, uh, to repeal the eighth in, in Ireland, um, people who are doing work around like anti-raids, deportation, who are doing um, international solidarity work um, with Kurdish people, for example, um, and and it felt very collective. I didn't want to write a book from a kind of singular authorial voice because I don't really believe that... I think of um, uh, feminism as a, a communal project, right? It asks, like... It, it, it exists in service of all people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wanted the book to, to be structured in that same way. I wanted there to be many voices. And so I remember I reached out to um, Merge, which are um, a migrant-led organisation in Ireland who are working towards reproductive justice and had many critiques of um, the repeal the eighth um, campaign and talking to a group like that really for me brought brought up the tensions between um what is framed as feminist concern and actually what feminists on the ground are doing to keep each other alive and that to me is something like that's that's the one thing that I take away from the book that there are lots of people who organize under the term um or umbrella term feminism etc that don't actually care whether we live or die right don't actually have a, a political ethos that extends beyond what the law says or what the state says or what the local council says um and and 
that's it can sometimes it can feel like a betrayal but i think it's it's actually really important to fortify our own commitments and to also think um try and reassess how we understand feminist history to understand that feminist history is not finished we are not like in a in a distinct temporal location called the present and they are in the past actually a lot of the genealogies a lot of the ideas and the methods inform exactly what we do now and will inform how we approach um our political horizons, whatever they are, you know? Um, yeah, so so that was kind of the overall process of the book. I wanted to insert this idea of kind of... That chaos can be productive. Yeah. That we don't have to, you know, have this um, deference to our feminist foremothers. We can be in conversation, and that can be genuinely um, generative and kind of intergenerational as well. Gorgeous. Thank you so much, Lola. I know, yeah... I know. <laughs> um, we've got time to maybe do like two questions. There's a roaming mic somewhere, I've been told. Does anyone have a question for Lola? Yeah? Okay, no, we're You're good. on. Um, I was just wondering um, about what you thought about the fact that the pandemic obviously gave the police a lot more power than they ever had before. Well, not before, but, you know, a lot considerably more power. And I was wondering um, how you think that manifested in ways that didn't involve actual things to do with the pandemic and actually how that manifested in other ways of injustice and the lingering ways that that sort of is still in society and where it was before and where it is now. Thank you um, for that question. I think like the the first thing that comes to mind is thinking about how um, during the pandemic um, the government made it easier to section people and and to use police power also to section people. And if we think about um, how the majority of the people who are sectioned are um, uh, black people of color, um, that's a really I think serious. That should be a really f- serious feminist concern, right? And when we talk about abolition, we're not just talking about the abolition of prisons and policing. We're talking about the abolition also of um, psychiatry as a as a model, right? We, we know that people have died because they have been sectioned. And we know that sectioning doesn't actually allow people who are experiencing a mental health crisis agency, nor does it allow their family access to them. Um, so, like, that's, that's something that, like really comes to mind and also I think it it demonstrates to us how police power is linked to every aspect of the state right it's linked to our education it's linked to healthcare it's linked to um, housing it's it's linked to our ability to um, uh, access benefits and like on the on the um on the note of housing as well, there's a there's a group called No More Exclusions, which is doing a lot of work to end school exclusion because they're they're drawing um, a straight line between the school to prison pipeline, as we all. Um, as some of us know, basically, that there's a direct route between um, uh, being excluded from school towards um, uh, being put in a unit towards going to prison. We also know that uh, lots of people who um, are in prisons have have had experiences of being in care. And so when we're making critiques of institutions, those can't be done in uh, in kind of silo or in uh, isolation. We have to understand how these um, enable police powers to kind of spread through them, I guess. Like, that's it's not like a a broad answer, but that's what I've come out thinking, right? That we can't think of anything as happening just over there. All these issues are connected and all of them have a have an impact on the way that we live or have an impact. Like, if, if we... I think 
ethically, what feminism asks us is to to kind of like um, uh, behave as if we were responsible for one another. Like, even if we have no familial and or connection, right? Um, and that's a really important thing in any kind of political methodology because that's what stops you from just like looking away when you see someone being sectioned, you see someone being picked up from the police because you're like, that's not my business. But if, if there's a, a kind of connection there with like um, your community or with this other person, if, if there's a, an ethical responsibility, then you're much more involved in each other's lives in ways that hopefully allow for freedom or hopefully allow um, for people to work together in order to um, claw back some of the space that they're not being given by state institutions. Thanks. Good question. Uh, one here? Um, thank you. This, is, this would be a personal favor to me because um, I'm not quite sure how to respond to my family on this point. Um, I went back to the US for the first time in a few years, um, and I live in a large, major American city, and um, that city had pulled back police after George Floyd, which was good, our police voice is vile, but then my parents were talking about how now we have a carjacking problem, and just like violent crime has gone up, um, because there's just not police to respond to these incidents, is what they said. And I didn't really know how to respond to this, so I was wondering if I mean, America is obviously, <laughs> you, you understand, but um, yeah, like what kind, of th what kind of points would you give to someone who was talking about that? I think um, I'm thinking strategically here only. I think actually some of the talking points that abolitionists use in that respect is actually focusing on how when police do have fully funded budgets, they're not actually very good at the job that they say that they're doing, like you know, my family home has been burgled many a time and my parents are people who called the police and the police didn't do anything. When your bike gets stolen or when, you know, um, uh, these things happen, I, I feel like it might be good to, I guess, do some research in um, your area because I doubt actually that crime has gone up. I think that that is just um, the cumulative effect of um, living under police power is that y there is this illusion of safety and this illusion of, um, I guess, um, control that is shattered when people, um, when, when uh, police budgets are defunded. You could also, like... Ruth, Gil um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who who is one of the most famous you know practitioners of abolition, says this thing that like abolition is not just absence, it's presence. So it's not just taking money from police budgets, it's the redistribution of that money into housing, healthcare, education, so that actually the roots of social problems or the roots of um, what you know, it's called criminality, are actually addressed. Often um, poverty is at, at the root of a lot of um, what goes on to be called crime. And so I guess you can do like um, um, uh, things that are, you can look up facts that are, I guess, local to your area. But I think it's really important to undo the myth that actually the, the police are a competent f force because it, they're not, just generally, I think. I reckon we can squeeze in one more if there's any more. One more question, be brave. Oh yeah, go on. Gorgeous heart. Thank you. Um, are you able to tell us what first inspired you to be a feminist? Sorry, where are you? Hi. Say that again. Um, are you able to tell us what first inspired you to be a feminist? Oh, thank you so much for that question. Um, 
what first inspired me to be a feminist? I think that, uh, and this is something I wrote about in the book, um, when I was younger, lots of things were happening to me, like in school and in my family that I didn't really understand. Like just very basic things, like my siblings were allowed to do things that I wasn't, or people were treating me in specific ways and nobody could tell me why really. And I would, I would always ask, like, oh, why is this happening? Or why do I have to do this? Or why do I have to wear this? And nobody really gave me a good enough answer. And I feel like that's really what inspired me to be a feminist because I went in search of those answers that nobody could give me. And I found out that actually there are all of these like rules and codes that somebody made up that apparently we all have to um, obey for some reason. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and that was, uh, it, that gave me a lot of like personal power and freedom. It allowed me to be like, oh, wow, well, I don't have to follow these rules and I don't have to, you know, act in this certain way. And then when I got a bit older, I realized that it wasn't just about me. It was also about like, how could I give other people that freedom and what, what kind of critiques did I have to make in order to get there? So like, all of the things that were sitting on me were also things that were sitting on other people like me and other people that weren't like me. And I was like, okay, feminism is something I can use to try and figure out this problem. And it's still something that I'm using to figure out this problem because it's it kind of never ends. It's it's not that you like realize that the world is organized in a certain way and then you just kind of stop. You're always asking questions about how it can be better or how it can change. And that's what I really love about being a feminist is that there's lots of room to ask those questions and there's lots of room um, to find community with other people that are asking similar questions and to feel safe and held because of that so thank you so much for that question, that was a really great question. please make some noise for lola thank you thank you gorgeous uh we are out of time i just want to say anyone who wants to get a copy of lola's gorgeous book she will be signing some celebrity next door in the bookshop um and yeah thanks so much for coming and thank you to the rsa Ladies and gentlemen, give a huge, warm applause to Liv and Lola. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.